This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Thank everybody for tuning in to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fancy Hockey Podcast, the best hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who at one point owed Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. Thank you so much for tuning in. We've got a big show for you this week. I'm your host, Elon Dubrowski. With me, as always, the fantasy hockey robot himself, Brian Calm. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another brand new episode of the podcast. We're really excited to be here. It's going to be a party of a show tonight which is a great segue to mention that we have an actual party coming up. If anybody living in the Toronto area who wants to come visit the Toronto area on October 14th to cheer against both the Habs and the Leafs on a Saturday night uh, and just hang out and talk hockey with us and other Keeping Carlson listeners, uh, we're going to have a little a little launch party for season five. KeepingCarlson.com slash party is where you can find the particulars so party with us now, but also party with us in a month. Party on, Brian. Okay. <laughs> so, like I said, big show this week. I made a crazy spreadsheet where I took the projections from five different projectors. I got the projections from Left Wing Lock, Scott Cullen, Dom L, Steve Laidlaw, and McKean's. I got them all. I put them into a spreadsheet. I normalized all the projections so they were for 82 games played. So, you know, we're comparing apples to apples. And then I looked at the standard deviation of all the projections and found which players have the biggest variance. Basically, I wanted to ask the question, which players do the projectors not agree on? Because that seems like good content for the podcast. Obviously, there's some guys, you know, like Mike Hoffman, who everyone says he's going to get 62 or 63 points. Nothing really to discuss here, but we've got a lot of players where there's a lot of disagreement for the different projectors, and so we're going to go through them today. Before we get to that, though, let's mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com, another great projector. And if you want to get the Dauber projections for next season, you should definitely check out the Dauber Hockey Fantasy Hockey Guide. You could buy it at the website. It updates all throughout training camp. Plus, of course, you've got all the other great content on Dauber Hockey, so you definitely need to check out that site. Get the guide, DauberHockey.com. And it's updated all the time. So as new info comes out that might affect projections, that stuff gets in the guide and then you can download it again and have it totally up to date. One of the great advantages of having guides in the PDF and internet and download era, which is what we all call what we're living in right now. 
Yeah, there's also, of course, a downloadable spreadsheet with the projections. But okay, let's get into our content for today. Before we get into all these projections, Brian, I want to do a quick PSA for our listeners. We've been getting a lot of news over the past few days. Finally, the preseason has started and we're getting some line changes. And of course, during the season of Keeping Carlson, that's a big thing. We look at who's playing with who and we make decisions about if player values are going up or down because of them. So I want to ask you, how much stock should we be putting into these line combinations? Like we got news that Galchenyuk isn't going to be playing center, but Druin will to start the preseason. That was kind of interesting. I saw a rumor that the top line on Montreal for the first preseason game was going to be Pacioretty, Druin, and Alish Hemsky. So does that mean Hemsky's value goes up? Then I saw news about Nemesnikov playing with Kucherov and Stamkos. Obviously, that would be huge for Nemesnikov if that sticks. I saw Pominville is playing with Jack Eichel and Evander Kane in preseason and practice, I guess. Also on Chicago, there was rumors of a Debrinket, Schmaltz, Patrick Kane. I actually got a question on Twitter. From at jwonger7 asking, heard Nick Schmaltz could play with Kane. Would you rather have him or Jaden Schwartz or Zetterberg? So it's like, obviously, this guy is really considering the preseason line combos. I want to ask you, Brian, should our listeners be considering preseason line combos like this? Or should we just kind of ignore them, wait until the preseason's over, or maybe wait until midway through the preseason at least? What should we do with this influx of new information? Not a whole lot. Sit on your hands. As hard as that might be to follow as advice when you're like desperate, like we are now so far removed from the last regular season tidbit of hockey, uh, a little less so from playoff, but we're just desperate for news. And so hearing new line combos is like, oh my gosh, yeah, Debrinkit, Schmaltz, and Kane. I think I saw a beat writer like say, oh yeah, Quenville is really seeing how that chemistry is working and like there's really something there that he's going to massage through camp. It's like, come on. Like this is still so early. We're still three weeks out from the first game, haven't even gotten to the preseason games during which we'll see line combos that we're also going to pretty much toss out the window until maybe the last one or two to have some sort of clue. But up until then, what you might be able to garner from these line combos is just remember what names to keep in mind. Like if you see the same ones over and over, Alex DeBrinkett is actually a pretty good example of someone who could find himself in the top six in Chicago in a role where he apparently has the potential to produce. So just having that sort of refreshed in your mind by looking at line combos, that's helpful. But making any hard decisions about it is not. And I'm also going to throw in something here, Elon. uh, Steve Laidlaw, previous guest on the show, he tweeted out a few draft day tips that you can go check out, his, his little thread. And one of them was like, you shouldn't be in the early rounds taking big swings on guys like if you think Steve Korea was going to be a really amazing player back for the Canucks yeah Elon you remember this this is back I don't know how often we rehash this story on this show yeah we had a friend in I think our youth group fantasy hockey league that drafted Steve Korea in the first round after he scored like a couple goals in a preseason game with the Canucks I don't even think he made the team yeah and just to clarify it is Paul's brother Steve Korea anyway if you're getting super excited about a player chances are people aren't as excited as you are. And that's a huge pick to whiff on also. So look, these are guys who you should start to be considering maybe moving up from the late rounds into the mid rounds or into the no rounds into the late rounds. Uh, But you're rarely going to find anything or I'm rarely going to see anything that's going to make me want to significantly adjust a player's value up until again, I said maybe one or two games left of preseason, even in the first few weeks, my answer to line combo questions is, well, we're going to see if this sticks. Because this is something that 
is being tried to start the year, especially if it's not what happened last year, especially if there's a new coach in town. There's a lot of variance and change as coaches and teams and players are finding their feet in those first 10 or 15 games. And that comes after training camp and after preseason. So yeah, don't put too much stock into what you're seeing now. I know that's not much fun, but that's why they call me the wet blanket. (laughs) Well, I think this is what you could take from it. We saw that Nemesnikov is playing with Stankos and Kucherov. I've noted it down to pay attention to Nemesnikov, maybe rehash, like look him up right before my drafts to see what he's been doing lately in the preseason. Is he still there? You know, make sure to watch list him in all of my leagues. You know, same with Alish Hemsky, same with Pominville, same with Debrinkit and Schmaltz. But I'm not going to be dropping Jaden Schwartz for Nick Schmaltz just because I see that he's going to be playing with Patrick Kane. That would be, I guess, a little premature. And I think even if Nick Schmaltz was playing with Patrick Kane, I don't think I would drop Jaden Schwartz for him. Okay, Brian, let's get into our content for the show now. Like I said, I have all of these projections. Brian, I want to start at the top. Sidney Crosby. Everyone knows he's going to be great. He's great every year. Last year, of course, was no different as he won the Rocket Richard Trophy for most goals. But surprisingly, his projections are kind of all over the map. I saw one as low as 78 points next year, which I was very surprised by. And then it went as high as 96, which seems more like what we'd expect considering last season he had 89 points in 75 games. That was a 97-point pace. In his previous seasons, he had 85 and 84 which is kind of low, I guess. And then he actually had 104 the year before that. But Sidney Crosby's always elite. But how elite is he? And of course, he's a year older. And also last year, his amazing year with 44 goals. And like I said, a 97-point pace. That was with kind of a high shooting percentage. His shooting percentage was 3% higher than his career average. So I guess my question to you is, can he hit that 97-point pace again? We know he'll be good. But there's a lot of good, interesting players to draft in fantasy. Is Crosby still like the number two guy behind Connor McDavid? And do you think he's going to be... A 97 point guy again or do you agree with some of these lower projections like the 85 I'm seeing 92 and then it's 78 which I think is way too low come on yeah so you've already touched on the most important thing which was the shooting percentage last year but I'm going to break it down in a way that's going to be even more amazing than just saying by the end of the year he was a couple percentage points above his league average so the 44 goals he scored last year by the way just to recognize how great that was for him they're the second most he's ever scored in a single season below only his career mark of 51 goals that came back in the 2009-2010 season and we had the conversation last year Elon about whether to start considering selling Crosby in keeper formats to anticipate his decline as he gets towards 30. And the conclusion of that conversation was that you could probably still expect the usual Crosby-like production or at least elite level top five forward production for another few years. But I admit that we didn't, as part of that conversation, see Crosby quite posting his best goal scoring numbers since his age 22 season seven years earlier and his best point production of the last three years. And again, going into the season, like I still expect top five offensive numbers and for Crosby to be in the league scoring race conversation for at least part of the year, if not a good chunk, but 44 goals specifically, that's going to be a tough act to repeat. Let's look back at the start of last year through Crosby's first 23 games of 2016, 2017, He scored 21 goals on 78 shots. You can do that math quickly to know that that means he converted on more than a quarter of his shots, turned them into goals, putting up a shooting percentage that was a smidge below 27%. And that's insane. Crosby is one of the few guys 
I think we talked about this uh, last show or a couple shows ago, Elon. He's one of the few guys in the league who can maintain a shooting percentage that's significantly ahead of the league average pack. But that's when he's converting at his career mark, which is close to 15%. 27% is unsustainable no matter who you are, even if you're TJ Oshie. Anyway, the rest of the way, Crosby played 52 more regular season games and he scored 23 goals on 177 shots, which was just above a 14% conversion rate. And you put that relative to his first 23 games. In his last 52, he played 29 more games. He scored just two more goals on 100 more shots. So that's more like it. That's about what we expect. And if you do just regress him back to his career average shooting percentage, over the course of that early season tear he was on, you can knock out about 10 goals, which is 10 points, and then he looks just like the guy he's been for the last three years. So a 97-point pace, I think that's too high for him to repeat. But the low end of the projections that you mentioned, like you mentioned 78, sub-80, too low. I'm landing at about 90 points, and I'm willing to even give him a couple extra, you know, on top of 87, 88 being friendly because of his likely opening night line mate, a lot of hype around him, Jake Gensel, and maybe having a third piece around him that improves upon what the likes of guys uh, like Brian Rust and Patrick Hornquist were able to contribute to the top line when they had their turns on it last year. Okay, at 90 points, probably still going to be good for second or third in the league in scoring, obviously, if he can stay healthy, which he has for the most part for the last few years. So that's fair. I guess at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter if he gets 90 or if he gets 100. It doesn't really change his rankings. But another guy who has a high variance playing with Crosby, at least on the power play, is Phil Kessel. And here we have a bunch of differing projections that would definitely affect his ranking overall. I'm seeing as low as 59 points and as high as 71. And that makes sense considering he had 70 points last year, but 59 points the year before. So clearly the projectors have different opinions as to who the real Phil Kessel is, the Phil Kessel from two years ago or the Phil Kessel from last year who had that really nice bounce back. Which side do you land on? I land on having him close to 70, but maybe not quite at 70 if I'm going one way or the other. Uh, Some people might look at his 59 points that Kessel put up in 2015-16, and then they think that 16-17 was the mere blip at 70 points on what should have been a downward trajectory from 59 as he gets older. But I... Uh, I think that the 59 points were the blip and that Kessel performing at or near 70 points continues to make a lot of sense to me. There are a couple things working against him getting to 70, though, which is why I'd air lower than rather than higher than. And these are them. The first one is ice time. Phil Kessel's average ice time fell below 18 minutes last year for the first time since leaving Boston way back in 0809. He averaged 17 minutes and 56 seconds, and that also continues a four-year decline in the category. And that decline is also matched in his shots. They've suffered not only as a rote function of having less ice time, but also at the rate at which he's been able to put pucks on net for 60 minutes. The counting numbers are the ones that look the worst. Four consecutive years of decline for Kessel, and last year's fall from 274 to 229 shots. That was the single biggest year-to-year drop that he's experienced. His rate stats, like I mentioned, they don't look much better. He put up his lowest shots per 60 and shot attempts per 60 of his career. Uh, So this isn't just a guy who was deprived of ice and couldn't put shots on net because of that. This is a guy who's doing less with what he's been given in terms of putting shots on net. Now, that all sounds terribly negative, but with it all said, he still had 70 points last year under those conditions, 
And the usual percentages looked usual, like nothing looked too high, too low. Everything else seemed pretty even keel. So if Kessel can still give 70 points in what was essentially a career low year for his own goal scoring and shot taking, then I imagine he can still do the same again next year, even if he only holds steady. And I think he's going to be capable of doing that. And before we move on from Kessel, Elon, one thing that I don't think people really appreciate about him Kessel hasn't missed a game since he started playing a month late in the 2009-2010 season. That means that Phil Kessel, he of dubious conditioning, apparently, has appeared in 610 consecutive games. He has not missed a game in seven full seasons. So he's certainly reliable, especially considering the group of players around him. It's really nice to see a penguin, a high-scoring penguin, that you can count on to play 82 games Touch wood. <laughs> Brian, you totally just jinxed. Phil yeah. Kessel right now. <laughs> I realized that right at the end. Don't draft him. He's going to get injured clearly now after this amazing run of games. But yeah, Kessel. Also, another thing that's great about him is just like, aside from how good of a player he is, we know he's going to be playing with great players. He's probably going to be on Evgeny Malkin's right wing. He's very likely going to be on that top power play with Crosby and Malkin and. Crystal Tang, hopefully for a lot of the season. I guess same could be said about Malkin. Anyways, yeah, Kessel is really good. And like you say, even if his shot numbers go down, obviously he's still able to put up points. I'm sure it's helped that he plays with such great players. By the way, Brian, before we move on, a lot of chatter in the chat room, which by the way, we really appreciate everyone who joined us. Keepingcarlson.com slash live if you want to join for our next live show. A lot of chatter about people discussing who is their favorite projector, like what projections do they like to use. To be honest, I'm just going to throw it out there. And this episode, by the way, isn't about like judging the different projectors. I'm not even going to say who projected what. I just want to look into which players have a lot of variance. But in general, like why pick one? <laughs> you know, like there's a couple free ones out there. Like Steve Laidlaw released his. Scott Cullen has his every year. You could pay for a couple ones, like the Dauber one, of course. And I like to get a bunch of projections and then go through each player and decide which one I agree with for each player. And then, you know, have a podcast like this where I get to ask you about the ones where I'm not sure of. And it's also not just about the number that someone's projected at, right? Like you're going to see a number, you're going to want to know what's behind it. And so I'm just going to put in a little plug for Dauber here because the free ones, generally, there's not a lot of context to them. Uh, But Dauber, of course, you can see where he's coming from on his projections. Other paid projections offer the same. So you also, after a few years of using them, get familiar with each projector's personality. So for example, Dauber likes to take big swings. We know that and we account for it when we're looking at his projections and some guy is like 15 points higher than we expect. That's someone Dauber's ready to swing for. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen, but if it's going to happen to someone, uh, Dauber's putting his chips on that guy. We know other projectors have a more conservative reputation. So, you know, they're not going to go too far off from what the player was able to produce the last season. And taking that into account also helps you read projections and get the most out of them. Yeah, but for example, if I were just to say, oh, go with this guy, like like I said, Phil Kessel, one projector had him at 59 points, another one had him at 71 points. And there's a bunch in between. Brian's clearly saying he sees Kessel as closer to 70, but maybe he'll agree with another projector for a different one. So, you know, I think if you listen to this podcast, you look at a couple projections, you should be able to come up with a sense of how you want to rank each player. And by the way, feel free to tweet at us at Keeping Carlson or ask in our patron-only Facebook group if you're a patron about any player projection, and we'd be happy to discuss where we think the player will land. But let's continue doing that on this show. One more Penguin. Obviously, this is a guy who might not even be drafted. Very different than Crosby or Kessel. But I want to throw out Brian Russ just because I saw one projection for 52 points while all the others were like in the 30s, you know, completely fantasy irrelevant. I just wanted to know if you 
can see any reason to expect Brian Rust to potentially break out and be like a 50 plus point guy for next season. I'd imagine the projection having him that high is expecting him to maybe see some time with Crosby like he did in the playoffs last year. Still, he didn't get that many points. So I'm not sure. He is a name that I heard a lot in the playoffs, but it didn't really translate to the score sheet. Do you see anything there? Yeah, I don't really see a breakout coming from Brian Rust. Obviously, last year he played better during a stretch of about 20 games when he was playing with Crosby than the rest of the time when he played elsewhere in the lineup. Like if you cut it roughly, which I I did, this isn't exact, but let's say in about 21 games where Rust played with Crosby, he had 12 points. And in about 37 without Crosby, he only had 16 points. So he's a 45-point guy with Crosby, 35-point guy without. And I think that's essentially accurate. I think half point per game is probably his best case scenario. He's a speedy guy, has some tools, has some skill. But at the end of the day, he's a useful utility player who can be used in several places around the lineup. He can help anchor a middle six line or he can help support a top line, but not be a key part of it. So I would leave him as a free agent. Don't need to take a big swing on him. And then he's someone you can grab for help if you have an open spot while he is happening to be playing in a top six role. Yeah, I feel like Sidney Crosby is one of those guys, just like Connor McDavid, where if someone jumps to play on his line, you will probably want to grab that guy if your league is somewhat deep. So, you know, I guess pay attention to these preseason line combos, but not too much. But if you see going into the season that Brian Rust is going to be playing with Crosby, then he might be worth it depending on how deep your league is. If not, definitely not. And if yes, also don't expect too much, like Brian is saying. Like, even with Crosby, he was only like a half point per game player. Okay, next let's go to the Leafs. Brian, one of the players with the biggest difference between his lowest and highest projections is Mitch Marner. He's just all over the board. One of the biggest ranges for sure. I've seen as low as 56 points to as high as 79 points, averaging in the high 60s. So people are really disagreeing on where they see Mitch Marner landing next year. He had 61 points last year in his rookie season. So it surprises me that people think he'll do even lower, but I guess it's possible that players don't do as well in their second year. So yeah, let's just go back. He was a fixture on line two last year, playing with JVR and Bozak. He also played with those guys on the power play. And I guess the question is now, is there upside for more? Of course, some people clearly think so. If we have a projection here for up to 79 points, to me, my main concern with Mitch Marner doing much, much better is the lack of playing time with Austin Matthews on line one and on the top power play. Last year, he was on line two, I guess, and on the second power play, or I guess with the power plays in Toronto, they were both getting around equal time, but I kind of like to consider the one with Austin Matthews as the top one. So can a guy not on the top line or power play really be a near point per game player? I famously and in my mind fearlessly suggested last season before it started that Mitch Marner was going to lead Leafs rookies in scoring last year ahead of Austin Matthews. Of course, that didn't happen, but he wasn't far off. He had 61 points and that tied him for second amongst Toronto freshmen. Same as William Nylander, eight points behind Austin Matthews. I'm still counting it as like still pretty good because it wasn't something that had any probability of happening, but it still wasn't out of the question for a large part of the season, or maybe that's still giving myself too much credit. Anyway, for next year, Elon, my concern is actually the same as yours surrounding Mitch Marner. He's not slotted in for a role on the Leafs' top scoring line. He's not guaranteed a prominent power play role. Uh, Mind you, he did manage 60 points in a pretty similar situation last year, but he also had the wind of a high on-ice shooting percentage filling his sales throughout. So if his opportunity and deployment stay the same this year as they were last year, 
I expect to see regression because of that high on ice shooting percentage. And so I think it's going to be a reasonable battle for him to match last year's numbers, let alone improve upon them. So going up to 70 points or point per game just seems a little too heavy for me. And that's why I come out closer to the low end of the projections that are out there. Again, he's going to have to work to get to 60. Some things are going to have to improve in his game to make up for the expected regression. And that's reasonable. That's reasonable to think there's still room for growth as a forward for sure. And hey, maybe he does end up in a more prominent role. But from what we know today, I'm calling 60 about as far as he gets. Wow. Yeah, that would definitely be on the low end as I'm seeing projections like as low as 56, but then like 62, 70, 74, 79. So you're on the low end. But I think that makes sense. That was a really good year last year. I don't see a reason right now, unless, like you say, something changes in his deployment, why we should expect a huge increase. Like, let's compare him to William Nylander now, who I'm seeing projections also in a similar range. Not as much variance, but I'm seeing 62, 69, there's a 72 there, so a 60, so not as high as Marner's 79 projection. But generally, we're seeing high 60s or, you know, in between the 60s or maybe a low 70. Last year, he had the same as Mitch Marner, 61 points. I guess my question to you is, and I think we, I know the answer from what you just said, who do you like better between Marner and Nylander? Who are you drafting first? I think these are two guys who are going to go one before the other, probably like 50% of the time overall in drafts. Like I could see some people wanting Marner, some people wanting Nylander. I think I like Nylander just because he's was last year and we're expecting to continue playing with Austin Matthews, both at even strength and on the power play. So I like that. But maybe there's a reason that you also think Nylander won't be able to continue what he did last year or improve on it. Yeah, well, I talked about Marner's high on-ice shooting percentage. William Nylander, on the other hand, actually had a low on-ice shooting percentage that I expect to regress upwards towards the mean. He's also in a better role. So yeah, I would take Nylander ahead of Marner. But again, would be watching closely at the start of the year. I'm not talking training camp. I'm not talking first few preseason games if they even play. At the start of the year, I'm going to be watching closely to see which roles they're given and how entrenched they seem in those roles. Yeah, put me with you on Team Nylander. As of now, I think he's going to be the guy you want on Toronto more than Marner. Not to say Marner's chopped liver. 60 points would be pretty good. Maybe he could hit 65. I'll be surprised to see him get more than Nylander if Nylander's the one playing with Austin Matthews. Okay, assuming Matthews and Nylander stay together, who do we expect right now to be on the third line? Like last year, Zach Hyman was there for a bit. There's Patrick Marlowe now in the picture. Maybe he'll take that spot or maybe Connor Brown. And by the way, Connor Brown has some rust-like variants in his projections with mostly projections in the 30s, but one 54-point projection, which surprised me. Do you see a reason why Connor Brown is that high? Do you think he's going to be the one playing in a really prominent role? I feel like that's uh, Patrick Marlowe's spot. It sure seems like it's earmarked for Patrick Marlowe. We know Connor Brown got to step up a couple times last year into a top six scoring role and was able to do really well in it. We always mention, and I feel like it's unfair to Connor Brown, so maybe this is the last time. He was Connor McDavid's teammate in junior, and when McDavid left junior to the NHL and Connor Brown was still in junior, he's arrived just fine. But of course, it's different at the NHL level. And in the NHL, Connor Brown is also going to need opportunity. He's a talented guy. He can also be a good complimentary player. I think the high projection for him is when you expect him to play on the first line. Like that's the only conceivable way he scores above 55 points. The other projections seem to be assuming the same thing that I am, which is that he plays a middle six role with little power play time, maybe some time on the second unit, but not playing a big role in the Toronto Maple Leafs scoring Still a useful piece when he gets bumped up. And again, he could be someone that you like to rotate into your lineup 
in weeks where he has a favorable schedule or you've noticed him playing alongside some scoring lines. But otherwise, I wouldn't expect much more than a half point per game. Okay, so who are you taking between Connor Brown and Brian Rust if you have to have one on your roster to start the season? I'm going to take Connor Brown just because I think he's got a little bit more of a scoring touch between the two. That's not to say Brian Rust can't get himself into scoring positions and find ways to get points on plays and help drive possession. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying, uh, what am I saying? You like Connor Brown better. It's allowed. You have to pick someone. Okay, yeah, I like Connor Brown better. The end. See you next week. <laughs> okay, no, how about let's go to Dallas now. Some more preseason line news, but this one wasn't that surprising. We saw that Ben and Sagan were lining up with Alex Radulov, which is exactly what people were hoping for when they were excited that Radulov moved to Dallas. I could see now why Radulov decided to sign with Dallas. If I guess maybe he was promised or maybe he expected that he would be able to play on this amazing line with Tyler Sagan and Jamie Ben. So that makes Radulov look very appealing, though with the projectors uh, there... Some agreeing and some not, right? So that's the whole point of this episode. I'm seeing projections as low as 53 points for Alex Radulov and then as high as 70 points. So a huge range similar to the Phil Kessel range, I guess, even though even a lower low than Phil Kessel's low. Radulov did only have 54 points in 76 games last year for a 58-point pace, which is good. Not, you know, 70 points, but 58-point pace is pretty good. And now we're expecting him to play on a better line. Though at the same time, who knows if these line projections will hold? Like, who knows if Dallas is going to shake things up and maybe Radulov gets shaken around and maybe something happens. Maybe also there could be injuries. So where do you land with Radulov at this point? Do you see him closer to the 53-point projections or the 70-point projections? If it's possible, Elon, I'd like to actually agree with both projections and I'll try and explain how that could ever make sense but first let's go back and see what exactly happened last year Alex Radulov got to play about eight games where he had two legit top line line mates alongside him those being Max Pacioretty and Alex Galchenyuk the rest of the time he's playing with one of Philip Deneau, Paul Byron, Thomas Plakanitz, Arturi Lekkinen you get the picture There wasn't a full-blown top line in Montreal for him to work with. So it's hard not to like him for some improvement on last year's 54 points when he slotted in on the top line with not just two top-line guys, but Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan, who are high-end top-line guys. And you also have to assume that they're all going to be together on the top power play unit as well. Now, it has been a while since we've seen Benn and Sagan and whoever all stick together on a unit for very long. But the Lindy Ruff days are behind us in Dallas. And now I'm open to Hitchcock not mixing and matching his lines quite as much. I actually went back to look at how he handled Vladimir Tarasenko's line from year to year. And it wasn't the same any of the three or four years that, you know, he was was working on the top line. But there's at least always a common factor. So I'm curious to see how things work. If Radulov doesn't hang on that top line, I guess there is risk that he finds himself on a second line. He'll still have Jason Spezza there in all likelihood. Maybe Radic Faxa, who could be a a reasonable guy to have on that line, like similar level to the Philip Deneau and Paul Byron and Arturi Lekkinen, I'd hope. But aside from less ice time on the second line, you know, it wouldn't really be so far off the situation in Montreal where he still managed 54 points. So much like last season, I've got him as someone who's dependable for 55 points in, I think, any situation. I think he's a really talented guy. But he can also take his point total up to 70 from there. I know that's not that helpful, but this is why I think the projections are showing just that. They've got the low end, they've got the high end, and this is a weird case where I can agree with both 
ends of the conversation. I think you've got the floor and you've got the ceiling and there's a lot of unknowns that make it really hard for me to figure out exactly where he lands in between. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Adam in the chat room is saying he misses the Nishuchkin speculation while we were wondering oh, yeah. if they would be the guy on the top line. I feel like Radulov has a better chance to hang there than Nishushkin never did. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't miss the Nishushkin speculation at all. Even, every time I even see a news item, like, oh, maybe he can come back from Russia. I'm like, if he's coming back, let's make sure we know exactly how we're going to use him, like maybe in a Radulov-like situation. But uh, I am not ready for that yet. That was like a long few years of being, oh, he's here, he's there. And I'm so glad that conversation is over, at least for the time being. I wish Valerie Nishushkin the best, though. And I wish <laughs> that he would come back and have a fruitful and predictable NHL career. Why? Why at the end did you say that? Who cares? Anyway. I don't know. It sounded like I, I, I was just happy he's gone, so I don't have to talk about him. Maybe he's having a great time in Russia. Yeah, maybe he's a bad guy. Maybe I wouldn't like him. All right. <laughs> anyway, I just would like to us not have to rehash who's playing with Ben and Sagan all season long. It would just be nice to have a nice, consistent year in Dallas. And hey, it would be great if... Radulov could get up to 70 points. Like you say, it definitely is possible. If he stays on that line, he clearly showed that he has the talent last year. Okay, let's now go over to Columbus and talk about Zach Wierenski, where I feel like we've debated a lot about Wierenski recently, both on our Facebook group and I think in a recent patron cast we did, but we haven't done it on the show proper. So let's discuss him here. Again, the projections for him all over the map. We've got as high as 62, which really shocked me when I saw it, and then other ones closer to 50, 49, 50, and then even a 53, a really low one. So all over the board. Last year, he had that really great 47-point rookie season. He was the top power play guy on Columbus. Like, just basically everything went exactly as we hoped. Of course, there's this common thread that people have been saying about Columbus from last year where they were riding an unsustainable power play for a lot of the season. You kind of got into that on the last patron cast. I think it may be worth for you to quickly recap what you think about this opinion that a lot of the good numbers coming from Columbus players last year were just due to that really strong power play. Yes, there's a lot of talk about you can't trust any of the numbers that anyone on Columbus put up last year because, and we talked about it while it was happening, because of this insane power play. It's funny, like a lot of Columbus conversations are definitely colored by the weird spikes and aberrations that happened last year, including mostly on special teams. We talked about Sergei Bobrovsky's very high penalty kill save percentage too. But back to the matter at hand, which is the Columbus power play, which everyone Thinks was really good all year long, except it wasn't. Like, it was insanely amazing, over-the-top, unsustainable to start the year. But then, like, the second half of the season, it was abnormally low, abnormally poor, the power play was, the rest of the way. And so all this got to the point for Columbus where the whole year picture for player production from last year turned into something reasonable with the early high and the late low kind of evening out to a middle ground that really does seem sensibly repeatable. Of course, not in the same way, but you'd hope for a little more even keel the full way through. So it's not feast for one half, famine on the second half, especially if you made the mistake of buying high on any of those guys while the power play was clicking at an insane rate. Anyway, let's bring this back to Zach Wierenski specifically. He had a pretty similar year last year to the Columbus power play. A lot of his production came on it, so it's not much of a surprise. In his first 36 games, he put up a 57-point pace. In his last 42 games, he put up a 43-point pace. So where's the middle ground between that 57 and 43-point pace? It's a shade below 50, which is about where he ended up last year with 47 points. 
And, you know, you, everyone thinks he has a lot of room to grow. Sure, he has room to grow. But I'm not sure there are any obvious big red light flashing indicators that are suggesting he's setting off on some epic meteoric rise. With Wierenski, look, there's always upside when a 19-year-old defenseman comes in, pops 47 points as a rookie. In fact, it'd been seven years since the last time a rookie defenseman cleared 45 points. Elon, do you happen to know who that is? Have you peeked at my notes? I haven't peeked. So we're trying to guess which defenseman had more than 45 points in their rookie season? Yes, seven years ago. The last one to do it until Wierenski did it this year. Okay, well, for those listening to the edited version, there was a long break that I just cut out. And then I correctly guessed after quite a few hints, it was Tyler Myers. Yeah, well, the hint was he was traded for Zach Bogosian, which which made it pretty clear. Tyler Myers was the last one to do this seven years ago. The only other defenseman as a rookie to break 45 points since the 2004 lockout. He was also traded soon after. Dion Phaneuf, he had 48 points as a 20-year-old back in 2005, 2006. I'm bringing all this up to say that, yeah, this is not the sort of thing that happens every day. But at the same time, you look at Tyler Myers and Dion Phaneuf, there's no guarantees just because it happened once. It's a rare enough case that we're not going to get any sort of conclusion from saying, well, Tyler Myers, Dion Phaneuf, what does Zach Wierenski have in common with them? It's not what we're saying. We're just saying it's rare and we can't really come to any great conclusions. And anyone hoping for 50 points or more, 50 points is a deceptively high hurdle to clear for a defenseman. A lot of people think, well, any offensively inclined defenseman who quarterbacks a power play, they can do it. But it only happens for about 10 guys each season. Can Wierenski be one of them next year? Sure he can. And hey, there aren't always those big red flashing light indicators telling us that it's about to happen. That's up to you in your draft day. If you think if those are going off in your head, that's your call to make. I'm just saying 47 points last year, offensive potential for sure. That doesn't make it automatic for me. I'm more comfortable having him at just under 50 than over it. Yeah, well, one thing I will point out is, you know how you were talking about how rare it is for a rookie to have more than 45 points. But at the same time, it's also very rare for a rookie defenseman to come in and be his team's top power play quarterback. So I feel like you have to take that into account. Wierenski is going to be in that same position again. So that's why I don't know if I would necessarily compare him. Well, the thing with Tyler Myers is he was on a Buffalo team that just stopped scoring goals soon after that, if I recall correctly. Anyway, yeah, I I think I agree with you, though. I'm not going to go so much higher than 50 points, but I definitely think he could get there again if he stays in that really great situation. Yeah, where I'm thinking of drafting him is as a 45-point guy or 47, 48, who has the potential. Like, he's a guy you can swing on and try for, and it gives him a little more value than, say, I don't know, if there's a 50-point guy that you're worried is going to decline or a 45-point guy who you're sure is not going to do any better. Wierenski's a guy whose upside is unknown, That's exciting, and that definitely offers some draft day value. Just saying, it's not predetermined. A lot of people are ready to anoint him as the next defensive scoring superstar. I'm not there yet. And, like, to be fair, I wouldn't be there for anyone. As a host of this show, you know, like, I've always been, I need to see two or three years worth of play and data to come up with who this player is. And by that point, I'll be comfortable saying one way or the other, the way I am about Oliver Ekman Larson being more of a 45 point guy than someone who has a shot at 55 points. And so, yeah, I'm not ready to make that call on Wierenski. So I stay conservative in the meantime, but at least I'm saying there's potential. 
Yeah, I guess so. So maybe after next year, you'll finally make your decision on if you think Connor McDavid is a good player once he finally plays that third season. <laughs> and hey, okay, I'll, just to stay on Wierenski, another thing in his favor, and then, and then I promise we'll move on. He's losing Sam Gagne from his top power play and gaining Artemi Panarin. So that's pretty good. That's true. Brandon Saad was not on that top unit. So you wonder if Artemi Panarin will be. Gagne is definitely out of town. I don't know. That's a ridiculous thing. Panarin must be on that top unit, although you would have thought the same for Saad. We'll see. Good point. That's something worth watching to see who else at forward gets on there. Yeah, it's going to be Panarin. If anyone gets bumped from that top power play, it's maybe Atkinson. If Panarin takes Atkinson's role as the trigger man, as we talked about with, who was it? Chris Wassel, I think, on an episode maybe a month ago. Anyway, okay, let's talk about another defenseman now. At the other end of his career, let's talk about Mark Giordano, who had a huge fall from his 56-point year in 2015-16 to only 39 points last year. He probably disappointed a lot of owners who drafted him, expecting him to be closer to that 56 points. And the projectors now are having some disagreements on where he'll be next year. I'm seeing as low as 35 points. Then we've got like a 40, a 43, and then as high as 49 and 50. So definitely a big range for Mark Giordano. I'm curious to see what you're going to say about him. What's interesting is that all the projectors actually agree on one of Giordano's teammates or competitors, I guess, depending how you want to look at it, Dougie Hamilton. He has like the lowest variance of everyone in my list. Every single projection here, I'll read them out to you. 50, 50, 49 and a half, 49, 50. So like no disagreement at all for Dougie Hamilton, but I guess some of the projectors think that both Giordano and Hamilton can hit 50 points while others think there can only be one. So which side do you fall on, Brian? Why did Giordano fall so hard last year? Is he now just a 40 point guy or can he get back to 50? And if it's the latter, he could be super valuable because don't forget, he still gives you all those blocks if your league counts that. We're going to address the elephant in the room to begin this conversation, both for Flames fans and anyone who owns him in a cap league. Last year, where he was terribly disappointing, that was the first year of a brand new six-year, $6.75 million contract for the now 33-year-old Dordano. So if it didn't look good for him at 32, imagine it six years down the road if this is the road he continues on. But can Giordano offer at least a little bit more paying for the Flames Bucks this year? Offensively, I'm not so sure. And you can tell they're leaning on him less. He had a five-year low in time on ice last season. A huge drop of 70 seconds of ice per game on average, losing 40 of those seconds on the power play specifically. And just to be clear... That wasn't what the Flames had in mind at the start of the year. And you can see it looking at how his ice time fell from game one to game 82. The season started out with Giordano seeing 25 minutes, then 24, then 23 and a half, then 22 and a half, and then just 21 minutes and 55 seconds over the last chunk of the year. So to be even more to the point, he'd lost about four minutes of ice time per game between the 2015-16 season and game 82 of last year. Now that's pretty awful. That doesn't sound good. There is a little bit of good news though with Giordano. He actually posted some of his strongest possession numbers of the last few years and his shot attempt rates per 60 minutes were up with some of his best seasons. Though the weird part of this is that his shots on goal per 60 minutes dropped a lot. So a lot of shot attempts per 60 minutes, but fewer shots on goal per 60 minutes. He actually had his worst numbers there in four years by a fairly long shot. And I'm sure there's an explanation 
for that summer, but I haven't been able to figure out if it was just a coincidence or there is something specifically different that led to a lower proportion of Giordano's shot attempts actually making their way to the net. Some other good news, I guess that didn't end on good news, but this is still in the good news category. He had a low IPP last year, so maybe that could rebound some. His role definitely has been declining. I'm not sure if this is where that should be showing up in his IPP. So if it shouldn't, his IPP could very well rebound to help him get another few points if he can get himself more involved again in the offense. To summarize all that I've said, because this has been a a bit of a winding road here, as for fantasy-relevant numbers, Giordano not looking so good. The other numbers that show defensive acumen but aren't fantasy-relevant, those are actually looking okay. But his role is declining, Hamilton's emerging, and TJ Brody had power play priority over Giordano for large swaths of last season. That doesn't bode so well. I'll go to 50 points for Giordano, but I think that's more upside than projection. After what we saw last year, I think what we learned is that we can't count on Giordano for elite blue line production anymore, but you can still hope for something decent from the skill that still remains. Definitely someone that I would have projected conservatively. I'm not counting on a bounce back from them. It'd be really nice if he could get me to 50 points, but I'm definitely not drafting him with that in mind. Maybe 40, 45 points. And that's it. Anything on top of that will be gravy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right at the end there, when you said I'll go 50 for him, but that's upside. I was wondering what you meant, but you're saying 50 is like the total upside, which again, that was the upside also from the projections. The highest projection for him was 49, but then as low as 35. You're saying though, you're agreeing with closer to 35 than to 49. It sounds like. Yeah. I'm saying I fall somewhere in the middle, which sounds like a terrible hedge because I guess people are taking their swings low and taking their swings high. My main message is don't expect that last year was just a, a random fall off and that it was uh, he's going to make the most of his contract for the rest of the time with the Flames. It was a sign of things that are not to come. They have come. So you've got to really adjust your expectations for him going on this year if you have not reassessed based on his numbers last year. So yeah, Elon, low 35, high 49. I'm trying to decide if he has a better chance of getting 49 or 35. Do you have any thoughts? I think it was fine when you said somewhere in the middle, I'll give him like around 43, 44 points. I think that sounds good. And that's what some of the projectors did. So it's not as if you're out of good company by going with that hedge. I think it's yeah, fine. Well, yeah, I was, I was just trying to have a take. My take is washed out by people on the extremes trying to look, uh, look really smart with what they're saying. I'm trying to look smart too. That's all. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. By the way, for people listening who aren't fantasy hockey robots, like Brian is, you did that whole thing about IPP. I'm sure like most of the people listening don't even know what IPP means. So you were saying that he had a low IPP last year. What that means is that there were a lot of goals scored while he was on the ice that he didn't get a point on. So he didn't get the assist or the goal for a lot of the goals while he was on the ice. And I guess if you're saying it was low, that means that, you know, his career average might be like at a certain percentage of the goals that are scored while he's on the ice. He gets in on them in some way, either a goal or an assist. But last year it was lower than his average. So that's why you said maybe he could bounce back a bit next year if the same amount of goals are scored while he's on the ice, but he just gets in on a few more of them. But then you also said that might be affected by the role that he got changed into last year. So anyways, there you go. Now we're all on the same page. Another guy on Calgary I wanted to ask you about who also has a high variance in the projections is Matthew Kachuk, who just like Wierenski had his rookie year last year and had a really good year. He had a 48-point rookie season, and it was actually a 52-point pace because he missed some games. 
And some projectors think he'll stay there, and some think he'll do a lot better. Actually, there's no one that is going down on Matthew Kachuk. It's only up, but the question is, is he going to go up to 52 points from his 48, or is he going to go up to 60, or even 64, one of the projections? So there's some people really high on Matthew Kachuk next year. I mean, hey, that second line of Kachuk, Backlund, and Froelich was really good, but was their goodness sustainable? And even if it was, is there room for them to get like even better? Or maybe we shouldn't look at it that way. Should I be looking at it as... Is there a chance that Matthew Kachuk jumps to line one or power play one with Goudreau and Monaghan? Because obviously that would increase his fantasy value, or at least I think so. That second line was really good last year, so maybe not. Anyway, where do you land? What would he need to do in order to hit that 64-point mark? Do you think it's possible for next year? I think that's a really tall order for someone heading to the second season who looked capable of the 52-point pace that he put up, but it's not like he fires a whole lot of shots on net. It's not like he's a power play wizard. He had 13 points, which is great for a rookie season with the man advantage. But it's not like, you know, high up their elite numbers. If he can tack on five or six more, that'll help. But I still am not so sure how he gets that high. If you're asking me, I've got him low 50s, not taking a huge step forward. If he takes on a bigger role, like there is room for him to do more. He had less than 15 minutes of ice per game last year. Part of that might have been because he had 105 penalty minutes. So he was in the box for a whole lot of game time. But I still imagine it wouldn't be too hard to get another minute of ice on his plate, maybe a little bit of an extra responsibility here or there. And that would be how he could put up points. You're right. When he clicked, the question is, was it a line thing or was it just him? Because he was nearly point per game for like over a span of 38 games between December and February. He had 31 points, which is fantastic for a rookie especially. But was that a chemistry thing? Can he do it elsewhere in the lineup? Not sure yet. That's what we're going to try and look for to find out this year. So that's why I have him in the low 50s. I'm definitely not ready to take a big swing on him. I feel like mid-50s is where he ends up for his career. I don't see huge superstar scoring potential, but I'm open to being proved wrong if he starts showing me anything different. Yeah, obviously we'll report on it if there's anything different that causes us to change our mind. I agree with you. I think the 60, you know, five, four point projection, that's a bit too high. But I could see like, you know, 54 as an improvement over his 48, which would be cool. So yeah, I think also he has a pretty high floor. Like I think he's not going to have a huge fall, or at least he's less likely than maybe some of these other guys. So there's value in that, drafting a player who you know is going to be solid and get you above half point per game. There's a question in the chat room here from Matthew asking, how is Kachuk with hits? I've seen projections from all over. The thing with hits it's hard to kind of project aside from just looking at previous year's hits. We don't have like underlying numbers of attempted hits and he had a low hit percentage, which we expect to regress back to like average, you know, like last year he had 65 hits in 76 games. So almost a hit per game, I guess for now, I'm going to expect him to be around a hit per game until I see otherwise. I don't know, Brian, do you have any way that you look into how many hits a player is going to get aside from just looking at how many hits they had the last year? No, not really. You can look for ice time. You can look for defensive zone starts. And usually someone who has the profile of a hitter can be counted on to continue hitting unless there is an ask from a coach to change their role one way or another. But trying to predict an uptick of hits, all you can look at is, are they going to spend more time on the ice? With him, there's a hope. So perhaps he keeps hitting per 60 at the same rate he was with less ice time, and that can help your fantasy team. But there's no way that I know to really project a sudden uptick or drop off if everything else stays the same. 
Yeah, I, I'd be interested to know if anyone knows more about how to project hits aside from looking at previous year's hits. So uh, if you know, tweet at us at Keith Carlson. Please let us know your thoughts. Thanks for the question, Matthew. Okay, Brian, let's go to the next player. I wanted to talk about Jonathan Marsh so now, another player with a huge variance. Oh yeah, I guess I don't have to keep saying that. Every player we're going to talk about is someone who has a huge variance in his projections from the various projectors. And Marsh so again, all over the board, I see as low as 45 and as high as 60, which to me is like 60 points. I don't know, like last year he had that huge 30 goal, 51 point breakout, which no one was really expecting. So a 56 point pace. So a projection of him to do even better than that would be surprising to me. But I could see like there's kind of good news and bad news. He's going to Vegas next year, right? He was on Florida last year and there were some injuries and he got on like the top line for a good portion of the year when he was putting up all of those goals and points. Next year, he's in Vegas. So the good news is he's less likely to get bumped from the top six like he did in Florida once everyone came back healthy. The bad news is he's not going to be playing with the likes of Barkov and Huberdeau at even strength or on the power play. His quality of line mates is going to go down a lot, but maybe as more being the guy, maybe that will help him to put up at least as many points or maybe more. I'm curious to know where you land with Marcia So. Would you draft him to your fantasy team? I got to be honest, I'm kind of wary. Like he had that one really good year. And aside from that, we haven't seen much. I remember the year before in Tampa, he was looking good. But again, that was during a stretch where he was playing on a line with really good players. So I don't know how much to expect from him when he's not playing with elite guys. So it's interesting that you end your question that way, Elon, and I'll get to it in just about a minute. But first, I'm going to take a moment to uh, humble brag if I can. If I, if I brag sort of hesitantly, I hope that qualifies as a humble brag. Uh, we sort of had him earmarked going into his time with Florida as someone who had the potential to succeed in a scoring role. In limited time and role with Tampa in the year prior, he looks pretty good. And clearly the computer boys in Florida thought so too and brought him along. And we were all right. He clicked early on with Alex Barkov in an opportunity that only came up once Huberto got injured. And then, you know, March is so cooled down within a month or so. It wasn't long before we were saying, hey, like this is not someone who's scoring an insane goal scoring pace anymore. I, I remember he was one of the first guys who we had to like alert people. If you added him early on, you really have to be watching him quickly because he still had bouts of scoring, which was great. But there was also a lot of time where he was just a half point per game guy. So the immediate thought is that, well, he's not in Florida now. He's going to Vegas and that's not going to go so well for him or for anyone Really, hoping that anyone in Vegas gets 60 points is crazy. Elon, I've already told you that the only player that I have confidence in breaking 50 points is Vadim Shipachov. If anyone else can do it in Vegas this year, though, it will be Jonathan Marcheseau. Now, you mentioned the supporting cast being weak. That's true. Uh, he did play with Barkov for a bunch in Florida, but he was still producing towards the end of the year when he was playing more with Nick Bjugstad and Thomas Vanek. Now, Vanek was doing pretty well himself. And Nick Bjergstad is reasonable as your line centerman. But I think he'll have at least that in Vegas. So he's got that going for him. All that said, I'm not expecting an improvement over last year's numbers. In fact, it's just going to be a challenge for anyone on Vegas to improve on their numbers that they put up with the previous team, save for maybe Shea Theodore, who will be in a brand new role and certainly leaned on to quarterback that power play. And that's why I have Marsha so right around 50 in the best scenario. Yeah, I would draft him like as a 45 point guy. I'm with you. By the way, are you surprised that Florida let Marcheseau go in the first place? Like that was kind of surprising that he was even left unprotected. But I mean, Florida's making lots of interesting decisions, including today where they traded away Jason Demers to Arizona for Jamie McGinn. Uh, out of curiosity, what do you think of this Florida trade from today? Seems like they gave up a good defenseman 
for, I don't know, is Jamie McGinn that good? No, Jamie McGinn does not offer a whole lot. Like, he's an all right middle six guy. But what Jason Demers offers as a right-handed top four, maybe even top pairing defenseman is much more valuable, much more rare. I'm not sure what's happening in Florida. It seemed like they were trying to clear salary. They also retained, I think I saw almost 13% of Demers' salary. So a, a questionable move. At least that's what it seems like. And that Arizona defense, it was already looking good. They've done a great job of building that in this offseason. Now it looks even better, which makes me feel even better about anti-Ranta. Not to say, you know, they're going to score more goals and be able to win more games, but at least he'll be protected. And it actually makes me quite concerned for Roberto Luongo and James Reimer and what they might have to face this season with a thin decor in front of them and management making a bunch of weird moves this season. Looks like they're trying to undo what they committed to last season with what behind the scenes seem to be a different management team and are now happy to settle for mediocrity. It's, it's very strange. A team that looked like the Stanley Cup contender not even two years ago is all of a sudden looking like a lock to miss the playoffs because of these strange personnel decisions. Yeah, though, like you said, with Arizona, actually, because there is reason to expect them to score more goals because they brought in Derek Stepan and, you know, people are excited about Keller and Max Domi's a year older. And now, like you said, yeah, one of our patrons, Ian, was saying he thinks Arizona has one of the best defense cores in the league. Like, Ekwin Larson, Goligoski, Jean Marcin acquired, Demers acquired, Jacob Chikrin, people think is going to be good, Luke Shen to even it out. That's a good group of six defensemen. Yeah, I guess what I was trying to, to get across is that I'm still cool on Arizona winning significantly more games because Demers is in the lineup. Yeah, they're going to score more goals than last year. They actually have good warm body talent playing for them. They're well protected on the back end. And so I guess like if your league counts goals against average, this might help hopefully save percentage too. Hopefully they can keep fewer high danger shots from reaching anti-Ranta. But I, I didn't want to go out there and say Jason Demers adds like five wins to anti-Ranta's projections. Right, yeah, not adding, like, just demerits, But overall, all the moves they made, I think, makes Ranta look like a pretty good bet as you're, like, if you could get him for your third goalie, you're rolling, and maybe even as your second goalie, depending on your league categories. If you're counting saves and you're counting, like, save percentage could be good, you know, for wins, who knows, but he might surprise. Okay, and so speaking of Marshall's former team, Florida, I like to point out the players who had, like, the lowest possible variance in projections. There's a guy there, Vincent Trocek. Basically, all everyone agreed. All five projections are between 57 and 59 points. So I think you could lock Vincent Trocek in to be a near 60-point player, but not above, at least according to all these experts. Plus, he contributes in a high number of shots and hits. So definitely don't underrate Vincent Trocek. He's really good, really solid. 54 points last year, but I guess everyone sees room to grow for the 24-year-old. I'm convinced I'm not letting him fall too far in my draft list, especially in a league that counts hits. Trocek has flown under the radar in fantasy. He doesn't have a name with great appeal. He's never been an elite prospect or someone anyone's been watching on the way up, but he's definitely earned his top six center role and does it very, very well. And as someone who's shown growth season in season out, but also very consistent production, it makes sense to me that everybody agrees he's going to get a couple more points than he did before being just as important to the Panthers as always, perhaps more so with less forward depth. Yeah, plus you know that Barkov's going to get injured at some point, so he's going to be centering the top line with Hubert Doe for at least part of the season. Okay, let's go to Edmonton now. Brian, I want to get your take 
on this guy I'm going to bring up. I'll leave it a secret for a second. But we've spent pretty much the whole summer talking about which player we think will be playing with Connor McDavid, who's going to get that huge spike in fantasy value. Is it going to be Ryan Strom or Puliyarvi or Nugent Hopkins? We're always trying to guess who's going to play with Connor McDavid because we know that guy's going to be valuable in fantasy. But one player we rarely talk about, even though we know he's going to be playing a ton with Connor McDavid at even strength and on the top power play, is Oscar Clefbaum, the defenseman, right? He's pretty much the sure shot top power play top defenseman on Edmonton, especially with Andre Sekera being injured, I think, for at least a few months going into the season. So with this in mind, I'm curious to know why some projections for Oscar Clefbaum are pretty low. I'm seeing as low as 35 and 36 points, but then as high as 50 points. That mark that you said is hard for defenseman to hit. But I see reason why you would project him high, just because he's going to be playing with the same Connor McDavid that we extend so much value to the other guys playing with him. Last year, Clefbaum only had 38 points, but he didn't have that top power play spot all season long. He was competing with Sekera until eventually he took that role. But he did have a good year. Like he had 201 shots, which is great for a defenseman. And like I'm saying, I see a lot of upside here. I'm leaning towards the 50-point projection. Curious to know what you think. He seems to me as though he should be the odds-on favorite to lead that Edmonton power play. And they started making that switch last season, especially towards the end. But if you go back just a step one to 2015-16, he had a 34% share of his team's power play time and a 52% share of his team's shorthanded time. And that flipped last season. He had 50% of his team's power play time and 36% of their shorthanded time. So for that reason, it sure looks like the Oilers are tapped in to Clefbaum as a power play option. Another reason why it looks like they're tapped in is because of how often he played on the power play towards the end of last season. And I think into the playoffs, although unfortunately I don't have that data in front of me, but you look at his share of the team's power play time, it was over 50% for the last eight games of the season, including games where he saw 65, 70% share of the Edmonton Oilers power play time. And he was incredible. He shone in that time. He had eight points over the last six games of the season, five of them coming on the power play, one of them coming shorthanded, so maybe they can still use him there. I think, especially with Sekera out to start the year, that he is the hands-down favorite to QB that top power play, which is an amazing place to be. I think it's a responsibility that he can handle, and I sure hope the Oilers don't try and mess up by thinking that they can put Adam Larson or Andre Sekera or Chris Russell or Darnell Nurse. There's no one else on the Oilers' defensive depth chart that appeals to me at all as a power play quarterback. Oscar Clefbaum is it, and they should agree. If they do, Elon, I'm going 50 points. I think he has higher potential for Orensky if you can guarantee me 82 games quarterbacking the Oilers' power play. Well, there you go. A bold prediction for Brian. I'm with you. Higher than Wierenski? That would be interesting, Clefbaum versus Wierenski. I could see it being a lot closer than a lot of people think, especially the ones projecting Clefbaum, like I said, in the 30s. Yeah, of course, the trade-off there is if Clefbaum doesn't or like has to share those power play responsibilities, his floor is lower than Wierenski's. Like, I think Wierenski is automatic for 40, 45. Like, 40 is being kind of rudely conservative. So 45, and Clefbaum without that power play time, 35, 40. So Wierenski is the safer pick then, but Clefbaum, I think, has huge upside. So does Wierenski. So maybe you do prefer Wierenski when you're drafting. I'm not saying Clefbaum should go ahead of him. But you're looking for like a similar role between them on your fantasy team. 
I disagree with you about Clefbaum being riskier than Wawrenski. Like you said, there's no one else to be on the top power play. I think Clefbaum even is more likely to stay on the top power play. Like Columbus has Seth Jones, who's a really good player and could take power play time from Zach Wawrenski. If Wawrenski struggles, like you said, I don't see anyone who could take time from Clefbaum, especially while Sekera is injured. So I disagree. I think he has an equal chance to be the main top power play defenseman as Wawrenski does. That's fair. We saw that happen when Wierenski was struggling for a little bit. Seth Jones did take turns quarterbacking that top unit. But as for Clefbaum being the only obvious option in Edmonton, we agree on that. But since when have we known to trust the Edmonton Oilers to do the right thing with their personnel? We'll only really know the answer once Sekera is back and healthy and playing again. Yeah, okay, we'll see. By the way, in the chat room here, Adam uh, didn't like how I basically intimated that Barkov is a Band-Aid boy and he'll for sure get injured. I was I was kind of joking. It's been four seasons so far and he's never had more than 71 games, but I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. I would draft Barkov still for next year and hope that he can stay healthy. But, you know, something to be nervous about. But yeah, I didn't mean to say it's like obvious for sure Barkov will get injured. But if he if he gets injured again and misses more than 10 games yet again, then for the following season, I'm going to call it almost a lock. Like, you know, a Latang-like lock. Uh, still on Edmonton, by the way, on the other side of the projections that are all agreeing with each other. Milan Lucic, everyone's got him. 49-50, 50, 48, 48. Everyone sees him as basically just barely a 50-point guy. Lucic is a guy who a lot of people drafted last year again because they expected him after he signed with Edmonton to be playing with Connor McDavid. And that didn't last, but he still was on the top power play with McDavid and company. So don't let Milan Lucic fall too far in your draft. I think everyone agrees that he should still be able to hit 50 points, which is barely, but definitely fantasy relevant in most leagues. So don't forget about him. Plus, obviously, if your league counts hits, you are never going to forget about him in the first place. Okay, Brian, moving on. Let's go to the Sens. I was actually really surprised to see a high variance for Kyle Turris who to me, I always think of Kyle Turris as like a solid 60-point pace guy. Like every year you could just bank on Kyle Turris to get you a 60-point pace, 60 points if he can stay healthy. But actually the projections vary for him as well. I'm seeing as low as 45 points, then one at 52, and then the rest around the 60, like more like I would expect. You know, there's a 57, a 60, and a 63. So like hovering around that 60. Do you see any reason to expect Kyle Turris to be that far below 60 points if he could stay healthy next season? 60 points for Kyle Turris at this point could be a stretch, especially because for another year, we don't know exactly how that first line center role is going to be distributed. Last year, he and Broussard sort of went back and forth depending on their line mates or what they were asked to do. And Broussard was in a funk for a lot of it. So that might've influenced how deployment happened. But you're right. Tourist is someone who you can generally set your watch to. I wouldn't say 60 points at this point. I'd say 55. But other than that, no, I don't see a huge reason for a drop. Last year, his shooting percentage, his personal shooting percentage was up at about 14.5%, which is higher than his career average of about 11%. So you can expect maybe knock a couple goals off there, but that still gives him a 55-point pace over the course of the season, which is why that's where I'll still draft him. I've looked through, I've tried to figure out why anyone would project him significantly differently from any other year. You could look at his age. He'll be 28 this year. I guess that's exiting his prime going by the classic forward trajectory. And that's a reason to perhaps knock off a point or two. So I guess if you knock off a point or two for shooting percentage regression and a point or two for age, you end up back at 50. But I think that's harsh. I think he'll still be able to hit 55 or at least comfortably 
be relied upon to be in the 50 to 55 range. 60 points, I will say that's too much to expect. <laughs> you're kind of going like 60, uh, maybe a little, maybe 55. Okay, 50 point rate. You, you keep going lower, so you're going to hit 45. But yeah, maybe another reason to take a point or two off is maybe he will be playing with Eric Carlson for a month. So maybe that will lead one or two power play points to disappear. You never know. Another player on Ottawa that has a huge variance is Bobby Ryan. This one makes sense to me because he seemed to be a solid mid fifties guy for his three years in Ottawa going into last season. He was always getting a pace of around 55 points, give or take a couple, but then he put up a dreadful, dreadful 25 points in 62 games last year. That's only a 33 point pace if he would have played all 82, but then He exploded in the playoffs and had 15 points in 19 playoff games. So, of course, the question becomes, which is the real Bobby Ryan, the horrible regular season Bobby Ryan, or the amazing playoff Bobby Ryan? And obviously, the projectors are disagreeing on this wildly. We have as low as 38 points, which would be completely fantasy irrelevant. Don't even touch him. And then as high as 54 points, which would be pretty good, especially for someone who also takes a decent number of shots like Ryan does. So is Bobby Ryan a guy who's going to be a great late round steal and he'll turn out to give you a solid 54, 55 point pace? Or is he the type of guy that you should just avoid completely because that 25 point year from last year is just a sign of things to come? I'm going to avoid him. He'll be tempting as like a later round pick, someone who still hopefully has the potential as a 30 year old NHLer with some really great glory days, not so far behind him to be able to touch 55 or 60. But if I'm being really conservative, which I am with him, I'm anxious about him even getting to 50 points this year. I will take the 62 regular season games of Bobby Ryan as a better indicator of what he's capable of doing than the 19 playoff games. The year before, he had 56 points in 81 games. The year before that, he had 54 points in 78 games. The year before that, he had 48 points in 70 games. It's been a while. I, I, you know, I said glory days not so far back. But he's never really been at that point with Ottawa. It's been about a 55-point player. Well, yeah, that's what the high-end projections are, 55 points, which which is what he was doing in Ottawa before last season. That's what I'm saying. It sounds like you're saying you expect him to not be able to get back to where he was in Ottawa the previous three years before last one? Yeah, I'm just nervous about it. He's not someone I feel like I need to take a swing on. He's someone I would rather count on everybody sort of forgetting about in my pool and letting him drop to free agency and then keeping an eye on him from there. Maybe like a a Thomas Vanek type from last year who people really weren't interested in, thought he was done. And then he played a big net front role on the Detroit power play and made himself relevant again. That's the sort of thing I would look for, for Bobby Ryan. I'm not looking to invest early with him next year. I'm open to him having some nice runs. Maybe could be on a 50, 55 point pace if everything is going well, but Last year, his team is counting on him less. He had a minute and a half less ice time on average, and his shot rates declined for the fourth consecutive year, and his shots on goal rates declined for the fourth consecutive year. There just isn't a lot to be optimistic about. He's also lost a step, too, definitely. If you watch him skate, he was never the best skater, so having lost a step from not being the best skater to where he is now, I think that's probably affecting his ability to get shots on net. And be involved in his team's offense. I also see a huge dip in his IPP. It was down near 30% when, for the last three years, he's been right around 50% since joining Ottawa. That could bounce back up, but it also might be a function of him just not being able to keep up the way he used to and be a part of an offense driving forward and trying to play catch-up or whatever it is that's going on. 
I don't have a lot of faith in Bobby Ryan. I don't want to draft him, but I will watch him closely if he's a free agent in my league. Okay, that's fair. I don't disagree with anything you're saying, but you did say at one point in that run that like you're saying you're not going to reach for him. Like I'm not suggesting anyone reach for him. I think he's going to be available for your last like pick or second last pick yeah. of your draft. That's where the decision is. Do you take him or do you take like a Connor Brown like we talked about before or one of these rookies? I don't know. I think for me, I'll take a shot on Bobby. I know people in the chat room here are using some fun language to discuss how bad he is. And maybe he's the kind of guy I would just drop. But I think if he could get back to being the 55 point guy that he was for three seasons before last season, you know, and obviously in the playoffs, he showed he still has the potential to get points. I don't know. I think he's an okay bet to do okay for your last pick in the draft. And I totally agree with you. Definitely not going to reach for him. Very possible. He just goes back to being like a 40 or less point guy. Yeah, this is the mistake you can make. You can think that there's still upside there. And I, the more I think about it, the more I'm leaning towards that upside really being a slim chance of him actually achieving it. I feel he's got a better chance of landing closer to 40 than he will to 50. I know I said 50 in the best case scenario, and I'm not all that optimistic about that scenario happening. I can totally see, like I'm not at all mad the way I was with some other projections to see the low end of him at 38 and 40. I think that's totally reasonable, more reasonable than thinking he gets to 53 or 54. We'll have to watch his deployment also. I mean, if someone's on a top six role and getting decent power play time, you can't drop him too far back. So we'll follow him as the season goes along. And now going from Ottawa Senators, Tourists, and Ryan to a former Ottawa Senator player and a player currently on Bobby Ryan's former team. Wow, what a segue. Jacob Silverberg is another guy that has a range in his projections. I'm seeing as low as 42 points and as high as 60 points which is a huge jump. And the thing with Jacob Silverberg is we don't really know much about what his role is going to be for next year. Last year, he was glued to that line with Kessler and Cogliano all year long, but news has come out that Ryan Kessler is going to be out until Christmas, at least. I'm not sure. Is this good news or bad news for Silverberg? That line was pretty good last year. But on the other hand, Silverberg had some sniffs at the top power play, but often he was bumped from that role by Ryan Kessler, who will now be out. So maybe Silverberg benefits because he's going to get more power play time with Kessler away. Like I said, most projections are in the high 40s, but we've got one at 60. Where do you land? Like closer to 40, closer to 60. And it's totally acceptable for you to just say 50 and be done with it. But I'm just curious to know what's your take on him. A couple of years ago, he was like a big sleeper for a lot of people. They thought, oh, he's the guy that no one's expecting that's going to really break out. He was good. Like he was decent, definitely draftable in most leagues, good amount of shots. But do you think he has that 60 point upside that obviously at least one of these projectors is seeing? Great shot taker, middle of the road, point getter. So far, you've asked the huge question, which is what does Ryan Kessler's absence mean for Jacob Silverberg at even strength? I don't suppose it helps him all that much, although I'm open to the idea that Silverberg could take on a new responsibility, be able to handle himself on the power play. If he's the one who gets to step in into Kessler's spot, then that's fantastic for Silverberg. And that would be a reason to bump him up from his latest high mark of 50 to, well, at least repeat it to 55 One thing to keep in mind is that he's not that young anymore. He's going to turn 27 just as soon as the year starts, which means you can't expect a whole lot of improvement. He's out of his peak years. He's no longer trending upwards. And while he was trending upwards, he was only hitting 40-point paces until last season. One thing that went huge in his favor last season was he played more than he's ever played before, 18 and a half minutes of ice per game. He was able to keep all his rate stats steady, even with another minute and a half or even two minutes compared to two years ago on the ice. So that was a really good sign that he can handle extra responsibilities. 
I just hope they put him in a role where he can continue scoring. If he gets that, I can see 55. It'd be so nice to see him break out. I remember when he was a Sens prospect, the hope that he would not only be a top six scorer, but a 60 plus guy. The fact that he hasn't gotten close yet makes me wonder. But at the same time, he's never been in that top line, top power play role. Still looks like this might not be the year that it happens, but he could get enough components of that top line, top power play role working for him to reach 55. That's about as high as I feel comfortable projecting him. Yeah, I think that's fair. Plus with the shots on goal, definitely worth drafting. Keep an eye out. This is one preseason situation that I'm going to be keeping an eye on. I'm curious to know who Silverberg is going to be playing with. Like is Antoine Vermette going to be centering that second line? Or I know Ricard Raquel at least has center eligibility in on fan tracks. So does that mean he could play center on that second line? So we'll have to wait and see exactly who Silverberg has to play with and if he could get on that top power play. Yeah, of the available candidates, you look down the Ducks depth chart, they are not at all deep at center. Antoine Vermette is the guy that comes after Ryan Kessler if Raquel stays as a winger. And I don't think Antoine Vermette is someone that is going to help Silverberg's point totals. In that case, I think I'd rather Ryan Kessler come back and knock Silverberg off the top power play than stay out for extended time while Silverberg struggles to drag Vermette around the ice with him. All right, Brian, and then to close out the show... I've just got like a bunch of old guys, basically, like players who a lot of people think, or at least going into last season, thought might be over the hill, but then had good years. And obviously that's causing a lot of differences in the projections just because, you know, you have to decide, oh, is this player going to be able to have like one more good year or is it over? And should we finally expect them to dip for good? So I'm just going to rhyme off a bunch of them. Everyone could strap in and then Brian, maybe you could just tell us at the end which players you think fall into the category of can do it again and which players you think fall into the category of not going to happen. So, okay, let's start with David Krejci in Boston. He had a huge 69-point season in 2013-14, but then struggled with injuries the next couple of years while still maintaining close to that 70-point pace. He was, like, teasing us. He was being like, I can get 70 points, but I'm always going to be injured. Then last year, he finally had a full season not being injured, but only gave us 54 points. And obviously, a lot of that was because he got bumped from the top power play. Now I'm seeing projections all across the map going as low as 49 to as high as like the high 50s, like as high as 68, one of the projections is. And by the way, that's pace. And I should remind people all episode long, I've been talking about point pace. So anyone who projected a number of points and a number of games, I like to the points divided by the games times 82 to give me a point pace just so I can compare apples to apples, like I said at the top of the show. Anyway, so yeah, huge range for Krejci. Obviously the question is, can he get back to that 70 point pace or are those years behind him, especially now that he's not a lock to be on the top power play? Then we have Zetterberg, similar story. He actually was looking not great a couple seasons ago. He only had 50 points, but last year, a huge bounce back up to 68 points. The projections are all over the place. Again, the question, is he going to be closer to 68 or closer to 50? Zetterberg is awesome, but you know he can't just get 70 points every year forever. At some point, he's going to have to slow down for good. Uh, Miku Koivu, same story. He fell to a 48-point guy back in 2014-15, but then last year, and the year before, actually, he's been in the high 50s, 58 points last year. Obviously, it helped that he was playing with Mikhail Granlund, who had that amazing breakout season and looks like Granlin and Koivu will be together again next year. So do we expect that he could have one more good year and be a high 50s guy? Or is it time for Mika Koivu to fall? Same for the other center on Minnesota, Eric Stahl, who's getting a similar treatment from the projectors as low as 46 and as high as 61. He had that great bounce back year last year, had 65 points when the year before on Carolina and the Rangers, he only had 39 points. So a huge bounce back. Now we have to decide if Eric Stahl is going to be able to continue what he did last year or fall back down and then finally redeem Verbata. Similar story. Yeah, to me, a heroic 
55 point year last year in Arizona, considering Arizona doesn't score that many goals. And, you know, he had that disastrous final year in Vancouver where he couldn't even hit 40 points. Now Verbata is in Florida. We expect him to play maybe with the aforementioned, very solid and reliable Vincent Trocek. So maybe could he hit 55 again? So to recap, Brian, all pretty much the same. Krejci, Zetterberg, Koivu, Eric Stahl, and Redeem Verbata. Which ones do you think can do good again? And which ones do you think it's time to expect a steep fall? We know that a lot of players on the wild saw a bump in their on-ice shooting percentage last season, and Stahl and Koivu both benefited from it, but in different ways. Stahl came from Carolina, where his on-ice shooting percentage had just totally sagged for at least three years, and then he gets to come to Minnesota, sees a bump in it, and I think it was a reasonable bump. Like, he's still about as close to league average, just on the other side of it, than he was before when he was with Carolina. I think his play is somewhat sustainable going into next season. Miko Koivu, on the other hand, has seen a surprising bump for two consecutive years in his on-ice shooting percentage, and his personal shooting percentage might be what's driving that as well. I looked at his shot locations to see if I wanted to force a narrative I could say that his shot locations, well, especially last year, I don't need to force that one, but the year before it didn't quite look this way. His shot locations were becoming more concentrated towards in front of the net. They used to fly around sometimes from the flank, uh, a little less from the middle, a little less from net front. But now it looks like he is right there for rebounds, deflections, taking most of his shots from high danger areas, which would be a reason why all of a sudden a guy who's had essentially a career average shooting percentage of 8% has managed to shoot 12.5% over the last couple seasons. So both different in their numbers in ways that we'd expect to normally regress, but there could be some weird sustainability in there. So I'll be eager to see what they can both pull off. I think both Koivu and Saul can get back to the 55-point mark, hopefully within the 55- to 60-point range. As for David Krejci, he actually had an inflated shooting percentage last year. 23 goals was the most he scored since the 2011-2012 season. And he did that on the back of a 14.6 shooting percentage when the last few years he's been more of like an 11% guy. So that's a pretty sizable jump. And I wouldn't expect him to be able to sustain that, which is concerning because you take a few points off that He goes back down to 50 points. We know his role has decreased with Boston. He's a guy we've loved for a long time on the show. We've pumped up when he's been forgotten, which has been often, because there's often been a guy in front of him on the depth chart, like Bergeron, or at one point, Tyler Sagan was getting bigger minutes than him. But now I'm actually ready to say, you know what? Maybe David Krejci, 50-point season is in the works. There's not that, like, hidden secret upside to him this year that title goes to Derek Stepan I've always sort of considered them the same as guys who have been usually productive but not always getting the best deployment or the most attention for what they do Henrik Zetterberg is a really interesting one to me just because of how much he did in Detroit last year with so little around him I really hope Andreas Athanasiu gets to join the team as soon as possible so that perhaps they can work together. Not that Athanasiu is like a sure shot to help raise Zetterberg's point totals, but it adds more depth. Without him, it's a really thin lineup. Even with him, it's a really thin lineup. Zetterberg somehow, Elon, you mentioned 68 points in 82 games last year, which was an 18-point improvement over the year before, which was a 
18 point drop from the year before that. So it's been a bit of a roller coaster with Zetterberg for a while. I still feel surprisingly high on him. And that's weird for me to say, seeing as going into last season, I said, this is essentially the new Zetterberg. Maybe he can get 55 points, but forget the days of 70 point Zetterberg. And then, well, he sure showed me at age 36. So he's made me a bit of a believer as he goes into his age 37 season. 68 points is ridiculous. Don't hope for that. But hope for 60 points and hope for him to lead the Red Wings in scoring. And then finally, Radim Verbata, who is one of our favorite under-the-radar candidates from last year, coming off a terrible season where he was underutilized in Vancouver, getting to play in a big role in Arizona. He certainly had his moments last year, but they all came before the end of the season when he had just eight points over his last 19 games. Before that, he had actually been on a run of 23 points in 25 games. So there was good and there was bad from him. If you had him at the right time, he was fantasy gold. If you had him at the wrong, you were kicking yourself for not picking up someone else who was streaking instead. I expect a little bit more of the same this year. It's great if he gets to play with Vincent Trocek. That's a steady guy. I think the two of them can produce together, but I would not project him to reach 55 points again as he did last year. I'd settle in more to 50 with hope for more. All right. Great rundown, Brian. I will say about your Detroit talk, Andreas Athosiu, like, whatever. It's Anthony Mantha's the guy who I'm excited about. Like, Zetterberg with Mantha and Nyquist, I think, would be Zetterberg's key to success if Nyquist and Mantha can pull their weight. You know, and Mantha obviously has a lot of hype around him. Okay. Anyways, I think that's great. We've covered all the guys I wanted to talk about. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of the show as we inch our way closer and closer to the start of the regular season. I'm so excited. I'm going to give a few announcements before we close out the show. First of all, Brian already said at the top of the show, but let's say it again. We're having a party. We're going to the bar. We're going to watch the Leafs versus the Habs on October 14th at a bar called Watson's in Toronto. It's going to be a lot of fun. If you want to come, please check out keepingcarlson.com slash party. That will take you to our Facebook event. And please just like, let us know in the Facebook event, you know, say if you're coming or not so that we can let the bar know how many people to expect. And that's number two. We're having our first ever patron mailbag show this Tuesday in a couple of days. So the plan is, this is a show just for patrons of the podcast who are at the $5 level or higher. And during the season, we're planning every Thursday evening, you know, midway through the week, we'll do a 20 minutes to half hour live show where we'll take questions from the patrons and sort of ride them off, probably cover some of the things that have happened since the Sunday show to the Thursday show. But obviously right now we're still in the preseason. It doesn't really matter. We don't have to do it on Thursday. Our schedules are a bit crazy in September also. So it's going to be Tuesday in a couple of days. If you want to join in on the first ever episode of the Keeping Carlson Patron Mailbag Show, check out our patron program at keepingcarlson.com slash patron and you'll get bonus content every single week. You're going to get either a mailbag show or our monthly patron cast on the last week of the month. So keepingcarlson.com slash patron for that. And actually also, speaking of being a patron, we filled the cacuffle. It's very exciting. Our Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League. We filled all five tiers, 210 players. It's going to be insane. So much fun. 210 of the best players ever are going to be competing to show who is the ultimate fantasy champion. We still can make another division, though, if we get enough interest. We have a couple people on the wait list already. If we could get up to 14, we'll make another division. We'll start Tier 6. So it's not too late to potentially get into the cupful. So, again, we'll send you the information of how to sign up once you sign up to be a patron over at keepingcarlson.com slash patron if you're interested. You can also check out all the other perks we provide over on that site. But, okay, Brian, I think that's it. With that, let's cue the outro music. 
And Brian, why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? All right. This episode of the Keepin Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons. Are you ready? Oh, this is where you're going to thank all the patrons from the past, like, five months? Yeah, the ones that I couldn't thank while well, we had the, uh, the, the gag order on thanking patrons. But we're ungagged, so thank you. Ryan D, Bradley J, Dylan B, Tony B, Bradley S, Mitch F, Brian M, Scott H, Scott M, Brad M, Adam G, Ray K, Chris L, Jean-Marc D, Paul D, Rob G, Garrett H, Greg S, Mitch G, Adam P, Kevin P, Doug P, Ty T, Jacob H, Adam S, Auntie N, Matthew A, Des B, Nikolai B, Blake B, Christopher P, Darren K, Russ P, Chad B, Doug D, Jeremy M, Brandon M, Evan T, Matthew H, Joshua B, Charles M, Charles T, Fabian M, James J, James G, Mac L, Colin H, Jordan J, Jeremy G, Kyle P, Jake K, Sam G, Keelan, Ian F, Tony B, Todd C, Wiz, Kevin A, Alex I, Aku U, Devin E, Jesse S, Jason C, Austin G, Jesse P, Nick S, Alex F, Dan F, Ken P, Kyle G, Terry P, Kelly B. Thank you. And also a big thanks to all the guides that we use for this episode. Some are free. Some are definitely worth buying if they're not. Uh, so thank you very much to Dauber Hockey, Scott Cullen, Dom, Left Wing Lock, and McKean's. And thank you very much, of course, to the resources that I use to help research this show, including Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dauber Prospects, The Athletic, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, Roto World, and Fantracks. Man, good job, Brian. I wonder in the edit how many times I'm going to have to be looping the same verse of the song over and over again to get through all of the credits. By the way, Anthony asked in the chat room, even though he's an old patron, if he could be thanked. Sure, Anthony, thank you so much for your support. Great job as always, Brian. Next week, we're going to have a small change in schedule. We're planning on doing the episode in the afternoon as a fun little different thing because I'm going to see Jenny Slate at the JFL that night. So... We'll uh, update you on Twitter once that is finalized. But yeah, great show, and we'll catch you all next week. Until then, keep on keeping Carl Sun. <laughs>